The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked at this long passage, and uh, some of you may remember, I certainly feel it forget. Halfway through, I realized all my notes were completely wrong word, and it was all messed up, and I was trying to really figure it out, and it just wasn't happening. Say, Nelson, you're coming, and yes, you're right, I am. But you know what? God has grace. We've got to have prayer in that. Because as I went back, you know, I wanted to cover the most important point, which I couldn't find, and I skipped right over. I went back and looked at it again, and I started again, and the Lord showed me that there's a lot more there that we need to see, and we need to stop and focus on that text. And it's chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. What I want to do is read for context from uh, 5 and verse 27 all the way down to verse 42. So let's read God's word together. The Bible says that when they had brought them, that's the apostles, they sent them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a, on a tree, on a cross. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now for him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
We trust that God will add blessing to the reading, the reading of His Word. We must obey God rather than men. Obedience is out of style in our modern age. Disobedience is portrayed on TV and movies and culture as cool and acceptable. You know, the outlaw who does good, etc. Disobedience is flavored before parents and school teachers. Disobedience to employers and bosses. Disobedience to the police. Disobedience to legal, corporate authorities and judges. Never forget watching uh, a documentary on prison systems and prisoners. And this one prisoner was brought back into court. He was being charged with a crime and he was compelled to give evidence. And the man sat there and he slid down in his seat and he folded his arm and he just looked at the judge, put his head back and closed his mouth. And the judge repeatedly told him, you must give evidence, you must speak. And he just sat there and refused to obey. At the end of it, he was given a greater sentence and sent back to jail. He got nowhere. He achieved nothing. But the arrogance in which this man stood there and looked at the judge was just shocking. We live in an age in which disobedience is flaunted on every side. As some will argue, civil disobedience is a very powerful tool to effect necessary change in society and culture. I just finished watching through a documentary series on the Vietnam War and all of the race riots and the things that were going on in America in the 60s and the change that was brought about as people disobeyed civilly. And someone even used this text to justify disobedience, saying, We must obey God rather than men. And the reality is that disobedience is almost always the greater problem. Disobedience is certainly the root of all men's problems. All the problems we have come from this point. Romans 5.19 tells us, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's our problem. And it all began with disobedience. Disobedience to God's commands in the Garden of Eden caused a breakdown in relationship between God and man. It was broken. And it began the breakdown in relationships within humanity. And by the second generation, there's deception and there's murder. Disobedience to God's established authorities is fundamentally disobedience to God and His Word. The Bible says in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God has established order and structure within society. He's ordained that parents represent God's authority to their children. That the police represent God's authority within society. That governments and legal systems represent and govern as God's representatives for the good of all people. Children who disobey parents are disobeying God, and so God commands parents to teach, to discipline, and to raise them to obey. Men and women who refuse to obey the governing authorities are in effect disobeying God's established authority. But in contrast, all true obedience to God's established authority is in fact obedience to God. 
Children who obey their parents are in effect obeying God because God has established them as authority figures. Men and women who obey the police and government authorities are obeying God. Now we all know that without confession of sin, repentance and faith in God for salvation, that obedience gains them no standing in God's eyes. They're still under God's judgment for sin. But obedience to authority is still God's desire for all this creation, all this people. So then, is it ever right to disobey? Were the disciples wrong to disobey the Sanhedrin? The answer, of course, is no, they were wrong. Was Martin Luther wrong when he refused to recant? He would not obey what was clearly, in his situation, an established authority. So the question is, when do men and women before God have the right and the necessity to disobey the human authorities that God has set over them? Well, from our text, you can actually see the answer. You've got to remember that obedience to God is our highest priority. Even the gospel call, we call people to repent and believe. The very act of repenting and the expression of faith is itself a form of obedience. We're being obeying what God tells us to do. But it's only when, back to the question of when it's right to disobey, it's only when the established authorities are clearly, directly commanding us to disobey God that we must obey God and therefore disobey those human authorities. Remember, the clear call of Scripture is to obey God. The apostles in our text are boldly declaring their obedience to God, and we want to follow their example. The Old Testament saints were those who by faith obeyed God. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and what you see there over and over again is so-and-so did this by faith. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Moses refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter and left Egypt. By faith, Abraham left over the Chaldees. That faith and obedience is securely fastened together. You can't separate them. Okay? The New Testament saints and apostles were those who obey God by faith. The goal of the gospel is the obedience that comes from faith. Paul himself says in Romans chapter 1, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith or the obedience that is produced by faith in God. So these men stand here and boldly declare that they must obey God. Our text for today teaches us how and why we must obey God. I'll give you an outline. You've got a note sheet there and the bright yellow paper in your insert. Obedience number one is declared in verse 29. Obedience is explained in verse 30 and 31. Why? Obedience is offered to the Sanhedrin in verses 31 and 32. And I want to jump over the story come in. We'll come back to that in two weeks' time. And I want to see how obedience is encouraged in verse 41. So now we'll pack the context. In chapter 3, Peter and John are used by God and the lame man is healed. The apostles are arrested shortly after them because they're preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin jails them and then questions them regarding the message. And Peter at that point in chapter 4 gives a spirit-filled response declaring the gospel of Christ and their allegiance to him over the council. 
council charges them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And the apostles at that point, they respond by saying, you decide whether it's right for us to obey you or obey God. And they leave. Chapter 5 continues, and there are signs and wonders performing the apostles, and they're continually preaching in Jesus' name. Everywhere they go, they're speaking about Christ in disobedience to the council's strict charge and command. And then in verse 17 of chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. In verses 18 and 19, they're freed by an angel of the Lord who tells them to go back into the temple courts and to carry on doing just what they've been doing before, to preach the gospel. And so as the dawn is breaking, I can almost imagine my mind's eye, the priest is still carrying on the sacrificial system, right? They're going out there at the moment of dawn, they will offer the morning sacrifice. At the moment of dawn, as the sun is breaking across the valleys and hitting the side of the temple, there's Peter and John and James, the rest of them, all standing in the temple courts, and they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin at the same time is gathering, they reconvene, they call for the apostles, and then in verse 27 to 32, we have the scene as the apostles are before the high priest. Notice, first of all, what the high priest doesn't ask them. Can you imagine? These guys are out there preaching the gospel in the temple courts. They send the guard down, go get the apostles, bring them back. They go down there, doors are locked, nobody inside. They bring the apostles into the courtroom. What's the first question you would ask them? I know what I'd say. How did you get out? What happened there? How did you stay? They didn't ask him that question. You say, why would they not ask him that? The Sanhedrin are so concerned to stop the apostles from preaching in this name. Notice they say that. They'll say, stop preaching in Jesus' name. They say, stop preaching in this name. They can't even bring themselves to use Jesus' name at this point in the conversation. They don't ask the obvious question concerning their escape. Their great concern is why the apostles have disobeyed their strict instructions, their charge to stop preaching. Their concern is the apostles' preaching will result in bringing this man's blood upon us. Well, that almost strike you as really weird. You say, why? Back in Matthew 27, verse 25, remember the crowds outside Pilate's uh, judgment seat there? He brings Jesus out, hold the man. They look at him, and he says, I'm going to set him free. They no, 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 crucify him, crucify him. Why? What's he done? Pilate can't find any fault in him. And the people, and the Bible says in Matthew 27, 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And here he said, he did not. They're terribly afraid that the apostles' preaching is going to bring his blood back on them. In other words, they're preaching and the people will all understand that's the Sanhedrin's wrong behavior. And now they're going to come looking to accuse the Sanhedrin. They're terrified that they're going to be held responsible for the death of an innocent man. They ask him that. That's what they want to know. Why are you keeping on doing what you're doing? You're going to bring us responsibility for his death. But that's long forgotten. Their words, his blood be on us and our children, long forgotten by the Sanhedrin. In the Sanhedrin's minds, they are the ones in authority. They are the ones who speak for God. They represent the will of God to the people. They are the leaders and the religious authorities. They decide who preaches and what they're allowed to preach. 
They with all their great learning and study, they're God's men for the nation. Who are these upstart Galilean fishermen and trainees and tax collectors? Who are they to boldly disobey the Sanhedrin's instructions? Why have they so boldly and fearlessly disobeyed my preaching? And that brings us to Peter's response. Peter declares their obedience in verse 29. And his simple answer to their question is, we must obey God. The implications behind it answer to the question, when is it right to disobey God's established authorities? Again, it is right and necessary to disobey when those human authorities command our disobedience to God. By the way, big note of caution there. Be very, very, very careful to disobey an established authority in your life claiming it's because it's counted to God's word or God's command. There's a lot of very interesting twists that we can try and come up with to get out of doing what we know we ought to do and is not against God's word. We're looking for a way out. Be very sure. This situation gives a clear understanding. It was a direct, clear contradiction to God's word and God's will. So they had no choice. They must obey God, and they would not obey the Sanhedrin for that reason. It is right and necessary to disobey when those human authorities command our disobedience to God. But in Matthew 28, 16 and 20, Jesus Christ has commanded them and us his disciples to go and make more disciples of all the nations. They heard that command. They were obeying In Acts 1 verse 8, our Lord Jesus Christ has commanded them and us to be his spirit-filled witnesses to Jesus' life, his words, his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. The Sanhedrin has commanded them to stop preaching. And therefore, they these the Sanhedrin called them to disobey God, and so they won't do it. Peter already called them in Acts 4, 19 to decide whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. And now here he boldly declares, they have decided, they have no option, they are under orders from God, they must obey God rather than men. They must obey God because to obey the Sanhedrin would be to disobey God, and they cannot, and they will not do that. But Peter's bold declaration is a striking message to the Sanhedrin. What in effect he is saying is, you the Sanhedrin no longer speak for God. Because God has commanded us in the person of Christ to do something, and we're doing it, and you're commanding the opposite. You the Sanhedrin have, and you are, acting against God. You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. There's a clear contradiction there. There's, he's telling them, you're already in opposition against God. Gamaliel warns them, you might be found to opposing God. And Peter said, no, you're already opposing God. And for that reason, they cannot obey the Sanhedrin. So Peter declares their obedience to God. Peter's declaration is the evidence of his and their changed life. This man, Peter, who once fled in fear, now fearlessly stands and preaches. You know, as I thought, I thought to myself, what is the clear, consistent, continual, and undeniable evidence that we have to prove our faith in Christ? 
It's one thing to stand and say, yes, I'm a Christian. But would the evidence prove your charge or your assertion correct at all? In other words, if you were charged with being a Christian, could you produce enough evidence to justify that charge? Could they prove you that you are a Christian? How are we going to show the world that we really are Christ's disciples? Is it signs and wonders? The answer is no, because those are random, and they're only as God desires and uses us for those things. That's not clear evidence that we belong to Christ. Is it speaking in tongues? God bless some of our dear parents, many brothers and sisters, who have actually made the leap to say, unless you speak in tongues, you know, truly say That's not in Scripture. It's not there at all. That's not clear evidence that we really belong to Christ. There are other religious groups, uh, even the time, who use similar types of expression, like tongues, as worship, but they weren't true believers in God. It's not disobedience to an authority that says we really belong to Christ because we refuse to obey the Sanhedrin. There are lots of people in those days who refused to obey the Sanhedrin, and they were punished for their disobedience. The clear evidence that you and I have that we are truly Christian is faith in God that brings obedience to God's revealed will. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, let the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's that? That's obedience, right? Doing the will. Jesus also said in John 14, 21 and 23, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What's keeping his commandments? That's obedience. He said also, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Proof of sending faith in God is obedience to God's word. Again, reminded me of Hebrews 11. All those guys, it's by faith in God, they obey God's word. Again, Romans 1, 5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith producing obedience. James said in James chapter 2, Faith without works is dead. But true faith is displayed by its works. And those works are works of obedience that God's prepared for us. Ephesians 1.10. Peter declares his obedience to Christ, we must obey God. By the way, did you notice the, the link there? We must obey God, and he refers to Christ. He's making a very clear link to Jesus Christ as God. That's part of the reason why the Pharisee is so afraid at that moment. There's another reason you get that to say. We must obey God. We have been saved and filled with His Spirit. We have no other choice but to obey God, even if that means disobeying you, who are clearly acting against God. He's speaking to Sanhedrin. The world was plunged into sin and death and darkness by disobedience, one man's disobedience. But Christ's obedience brought us forgiveness and salvation, new life. The proof of faith and forgiveness and life and salvation is obedience, as simple as that. And the question we've got to ask, that I had to ask myself as I look through this, is are you, am I, striving to live in obedience to God in all things? 
is your and my faith producing the desire to obey God? At the end of it all, it is obedience over sacrifice that God honors. We're thinking about the life of Saul. And Saul who went out and he offered the sacrifice because he worried the Samuel never showed up. And what was said to him was this, listen, God delights more in obedience than sacrifice. If you're sacrificing great limbs and great amounts to do something for God, they're clearly disobeying what God has plainly called you to do. God does not delight in that sacrifice. God delights in the obedience of men's hearts. These men standing here, we must obey God. Why? Because they're changed people. They've been filled with the Spirit of God. They've experienced forgiveness and freedom and repentance. And they say, we can't obey them. We must obey God. I want you to notice, secondly, that obedience is explained in verse 30 and 31. Peter follows his brief, concise statement. He follows that statement about obeying with a brief, concise statement of the gospel that also explains their obedience to God. There's three reasons we can look at as why we must obey God. Number one, God raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on tree. So number one is God raised Jesus. Number two, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader, leader and savior. And thirdly, God gives repentance and forgiveness of sin. Three reasons why we must obey. Number one, God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, by the way, just a little sign on here. Notice that Peter does not deny their claim that you intend to bring his blood on us. Peter just states it boldly and bluntly. You killed him. Three words. In other words, we're, yeah, you're right. You didn't kill him. You had a hand in it. But so did we all, right? But the wonderful thing is, he says, God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed. So he emphasizes the fact that God raised him, even though they had killed him. God was already at work bringing the greatest good possible from their acting against God. Jesus' resurrection proves a lot of things. Jesus' resurrection proves his deity. In Romans 1 verse 4, the Bible says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection secondly proves his sinlessness. Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Great old text. I'll never forget Brandon Biggs, a wonderful friend of ours in Canada, preaching the gospel from the King James Bible. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. And he marched back and forth across the pulpit, shouting at us, The soul that sinneth shall surely die. You say, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, but what the Bible also says, Hebrews 4.15, He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, without even the possibility of sin. And his resurrection proved that he had no sin, and therefore death had absolutely no hold on him whatsoever. Body, as soon as it dies, begins the process of corrosion and corruption and decay. Um, anybody, uh, gosh, my brother-in-law was telling about when his mother passed away, and he went into the room, and they fell up in the blood, and started to settle down in all parts of the body, and all the changes that were taking place. He said it was like five minutes. She had just passed and went back in to take the you know, wedding rings and stuff off to prepare her. He said it was already changing. After four days, there was not one single change in Jesus' body. He was dead, but death and decay had no hold on him. His resurrection proved his sinlessness. Jesus' resurrection 
also validated all his words and his works. Being raised proved his deity, which also established all his works and words as utterly true, infallible, and sinless. Everything Jesus said, everything was absolutely true. Nothing was an exaggeration, nothing was misstated, nothing was an oops. It was all absolutely true and clear. Jesus' resurrection, here's the point, also is the basis of our hope in God. First Peter 1.21, the Bible says, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God himself. We have hope because Jesus was raised from the dead. Their hope and faith are in God who raised Jesus from death. He will also raise us who trust and obey him. Faith in God and raised Jesus produces both hope and obedience. Why do we obey? We obey in faith in God and the hope that he will raise us also. We obey in the hope that he is going to finish the work. We obey out of faith in God. It's all proof. So Peter said, listen, we must obey God because God raised him from the dead. That's one of the reasons why. Second reason, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior. If you go through the Bible and look at all the references to right hand of God, there's some beautiful things that says about it. In Psalm 17, verse 7, the Bible says that God's right hand is the means and the strength by which God obtains victories for his people. In Psalm 139, verse 10, it talks about how God's right hand holds his children in the hour of their need. Isn't that amazing? When we're struggling, we're downcast, we're having difficult times, and when we feel like we're just so buried underneath it, it's God's hand. His right hand, his strength is always the right hand. It's that right hand that is holding us and sustaining us and getting through the difficult times. What a consolation. Isn't that great? You think you're walking along through difficult times? You're not allowed. God is there with you. His right hand holds you and sustains you. He will see you through. You know what the neat thing is? I can tell you over and over again, you look back in your life and you look about where you've been and you see some of the difficult times. You wonder, how did I get through all of that mess and come out and my faith is still intact? I'll tell you right now, it's not because you've got good faith. It's because God is holding you and sustaining you through it. It's God's right hand that holds and sustains us. In Romans 8, or, sorry, uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, God's right hand is a place of the highest blessing. Those who know the Lord are going to experience the pleasures of God forever. Where are they found? It's right hand. Where's Jesus been exalted to? The right hand of God. In Romans 8.34, God's right hand is the place of Christ's reign and intercession. It's such a cool thing to think. We pray for you, right? Do you know what Jesus prays for you too? Isn't that cool? You want hope in your life? You want to know how you're going to get through things? When we're praying, you can say, please pray for me. And we cry out to one another, pray for each other in the difficult times we go through. But to just know that with the Father's full attention, 
and the son's voice in his right ear, as it were, he is praying for each of us. He's reigning at the Father's right hand. He's also interceding on his Father's right hand. God has exalted Christ to his right hand. Christ has won all the victories for God's people. He has defeated sin's power. He's defeated death's power. He's achieved the healing of every sickness and disease with his stripes. Christ leads us and holds us and sustains us in our hour of greatest need. And you know what? The great needs that you have in this life are not the hour of your greatest need. The hour of your greatest need is when God's judgment falls. And you know, I'm so glad about the Lord of Jesus Christ because in that moment, Christ will put his arm around me and say, it's okay, he's with me. He'll put his arm around all of us. You say, it's okay, Father, they're with me, they belong to me, they're my sheep, and I will be with them, and we will escape judgment in that sense because, or I should say, escape through judgment because Christ will be with us to sustain us through the greatest hour of need. Christ occupies the place of highest blessings of brother and sister in Christ. We will know those great blessings, the pleasures of God forevermore. Are ours to enjoy as we are seated with Christ, enjoying his presence and his voice in our ear. But Christ will also be the instrument of God's justice and punishment. Those words that Jesus said in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. There's going to come a day, brother and sister. For an unbelieving word will hear the most chilling words ever uttered from one man's lips in all the course of human history. Depart. I don't want to make you stop and stagger. Peter saying, listen, we must obey because the God of our fathers has exalted him at his right hand. Why must? Why should they and we obey God? We would, why would we want to do anything else? Why would we want to do anything else but obey God, but obey the Lord Jesus? We must obey because Christ is the right hand of God. But you know what? Like those cheesy late night commercials? But wait, there's even more. Get this. He's our leader and our Savior. Now, I don't have to explain the Savior part. You've heard that once before. But I do want to unpack the leader part. That's really cool. Leader, a leader is fundamentally somebody who sets an example. The Greek word for leader means one who originates or founds, one who rules or commands. And Christ is the originator of perfect obedience. None before him and none after him have ever obeyed like the Lord Jesus obeyed. Remember that great word, the end of his time on the cross? The Bible says that he lifted up his head and he shouted with a great shout. And the word that he shouted was tetelestai in Greek. It means to finish. It's done. But not like you and I, right? You know how you give the kids or apprentice carpenters a job and say, just sweep the job site. And they go around the free. You know, around, you know, they're going super fast. And they come back and go, all done, right? And there's bits of garbage here and everywhere. You know, you tell your kids, clean your room, right? And they clean their room. And it's like everything went under the bed and the bed was coming over and all that, right? And they done half the job got whole finished. That wasn't Jesus. When he hung on the cross and he says, finished. Every word the Father gave him, he spoke it. 
Every action the Father gave him to do, he did it. The whole work of Christ on the cross was completely finished. He set the perfect example for us in what it means to obey. He led by showing us how it's done. I don't know about you, but I get really tired when I was in the working world of leaders and managers, bosses that would tell you what to do, but would never lift a finger to show you how to do it themselves. I have no time for people like that. I probably should, but I don't. I want somebody who's going to get down in the trenches alongside of me to pick up a shovel and show me how to lead by example. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, when the Bible talks about eldership and those who are qualified to be elders, in 1 Timothy 4, one of the things that Paul says to Timothy, he says, you set an example, Timothy. You're the pastor and the elder and a leader in that church. You lead by an example of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Timothy set an example for the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter says here, he is our leader. He set the example for how we are to obey. If you struggle with obedience and hard commands of God and obedience, look to Christ. Seek the incredible example. He obeyed everything. We pull back when it gets difficult or it gets hard, maybe a little bit painful. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's obedience. Christ set the perfect example for us. He finished his work in the fullest measure. Not one word of command the Father gave him to Jesus. Disobeyed, disregarded, or heart finished. He obeyed perfectly. What a marvelous Savior we are, brothers and sisters. He has not called us to do anything that he has not both done and set the example for. We obey Christ as he obeyed his Father. When Christ sent us to go into the world to make disciples, he has the authority to do so. When Christ called us to die to self, to sin into the world, which is what these men were about to experience, understand, on a new level, he had the authority to do so. God made him our leader, so we must obey whatever the cost. Even if the cost of our obedience is disobeying the authorities. I don't think it's any stretch. You can read the newspapers for yourself to see that in our nation, those days are far away. God made him our leader, so we must obey. The third point there is that he offers obedience, which is really our third main point. God gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. We must obey God rather than men because God gives repentance and forgiveness to men. In other words, if we stop preaching, if we don't make disciples as God has commanded us to do, how will the gospel go forth? We are God's mouthpiece and his visible display to the world to show them what it means to trust in Christ and walk by faith and obedience to God. If we don't obey God, how will they hear? So Peter's saying, we must obey because God is giving forgiveness and repentance of sin. And it comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus commands us to go. He commands us to be his witnesses wherever we are, in whatever situation we're in. Jesus commands his people to open their mouths and speak the gospel message so others will hear, believe, repent, and obey. And by the way, Peter's not standing there like that guy in the courtroom I watched on TV 
with his arms folded and his head back and forth. You know what I think he was doing? I think he was pleading with them. No, said Adrian, we must obey God because God gives forgiveness and repentance of sin to all those who obey him. And you can see him look at the Sanhedrin, looking around him, 72 men all gathered around him, and he's there in the middle. And the one who is being questioned and in charge is now the one who is offering and saying, for you too, there is forgiveness and repentance of sin. What will they do? Well, we already know the next verse is going to get super angry. The question has to come up. What will you do? What will you do with such an offer? We have all, by our own individual sin and disobedience to God, we've all had a hand in Jesus' death, just like they did. He died in my place to satisfy God's anger and me. God raised Jesus from death, proving and displaying his deity. He exalted Jesus to his right hand. God made him to be a leader, a ruler, and a savior. God offers to each one of us forgiveness. You ever go with somebody and seek forgiveness for your sin? Something you've done. And that person turns to you and says, Oh, it's okay, I forgive you, it's alright. There's a tremendous sense of joy and peace in your heart. God offers forgiveness to every one of us. We've all sinned against Him. You're not alone in that. God offers you. Not only that, he will help us to turn. He offers repentance to us. It's a gift. He offers us the filling of the Holy Spirit to empower and enable us to repent of sin and obey His call. He calls on us to believe the message of the gospel. He calls on you and I to repent and obey Him. The question is, brother and sister, sitting here this morning, what will you do with such a call? You can ignore my voice. It's easy. You can walk out and you can stick your fingers in your ears and you can think about something else. That's easy to do. But brother and sister, when you stand before the living God, the day to come, you will not ignore his voice. He will ask you what you did with Jesus Christ. And I hope, I pray, plead with God for everybody in this church. When that day comes and Christ will step alongside them and put their arm, his arm around your shoulders and say, it's okay, she's with me. It's okay, he's with me. But I fear that there are some that Christ will step back and say, go away. And it's not a Lord Lord. It's not coming to church every Sunday morning. It's not any of those things. You can do all they, they we preached the gospel, we cast out demons, we did this, we did that, and he said, Depart from me, I didn't know you. It's those who do the will of God, repent of sin, and trust in Christ, and walk in obedience. Those are the ones that Christ will say, I know you. Last thing, I want to spend a last little bit of time in talking about those of us who know the Lord and the kind of obedient life we're living. I'm begging you, I really am. I'm begging my own heart also. Don't buy into the notion, the idea that you can make a profession of faith in Christ and live any way you choose. That is not freedom in Christ. That's self-deception. Just love what Christ calls to. 
He didn't say, believe in me. And go and live in sin all your life. Always you believe me, it's okay. It's your freak to come out. He said, if any man would come after me, that's the if, then there's the then part. Then let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Call us to radical obedience. The life of a disciple of Christ is a radically changed life. Peter was radically changed by his encounter with Christ. Remember the first scene? Jesus gets the boat with him, they go out fishing. He says, We've been fishing all night, but we haven't caught a single minnow. No. And Jesus says, Put the nets on the other side of the boat, put down your nets for a couch. Peter's like, all right, if you insist, and the attitude comes to the words is basically, if you insist, fine. So he throws a net over one single net. He's got a lot there. He starts to pull up. And it's so heavy and so full of fish that the boat almost begins to sink. What does Peter do? The Bible says he falls on his knees in the bottom of the boat and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a simple man. Peter, who stood there and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Oh, blessed are you, Son of our Lord, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you by my Father in heaven. Two minutes later, what's he doing? Taking Jesus aside and telling him all. This will never happen to you. No, no, no. I will let it. Amen. Jesus says, Give me time to see. A little bit later, along with the story, and Jesus is being questioned and brutally treated by the guards in the Sanhedrin in one place, and outside by the fire, Peter's warming his hands. Oh, you were with him. You're a Galilean. I don't know that guy. Never mind. Never mind me. By the end of that conversation, he's calling out the curses of God upon himself if he even knows Jesus. The rooster crows, and Peter looks across, and Jesus turns around. You can see it in my mind's eye. Their eyes just cross. In that moment, you can almost imagine the impact of the conviction of the Spirit of God that pounded down on Peter's heart. The Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. Now here he is, he's standing in front of the stand here, the most powerful court in his nation. 72 men who can have him taken out and killed like that. 72 men who will decide in a few moments to stretch him out on the ground, hold his hands and feet, and beat him with rods 39 times until he is beaten and bruised and bleeding. And he stands there and in boldness, filled with the Spirit of God, says, We must obey God. That's a radically changed life. From the impetuous, fast moving, slow thinking fisherman to a kind and gentle and wise shepherd. You read first and second Peter, what you read in that is a gentle man who is speaking the things of Christ with a just a beautiful softness, the way he speaks. Radically changed. And brothers and sisters, what concerns me about my life and what concerns me as I look at some of your lives too, as your pastor and your shepherd, is what I see is lives that are professions of Christ that look just like the world. We claim Christ with this, but with this, six days a week we look and sound and walk just like the rest of the world. I'm not saying you, 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 I'm saying us. A seat the encounter with Christ must change us. I'm convinced that their obedience was not half-hearted. It was not a convenient obedience. When and if they have time, 
It was not a reserved obedience. You know, Lord, I'll obey you, but I have a limit to you. They didn't do that. They stood there. And verse number 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In other words, they were, their obedience was a joyful obedience. Their obedience was an eager, willing obedience. By faith, they obeyed Christ from the heart. The Bible says in Romans 6, 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you, have, you were committed. In other words, you become obedient and not just a visible obedience. Not just the obedience you give your parents when they're watching, but not when they're not watching. Or the obedience you give your bosses and employers when they're watching. Or the obedience you give your teachers when they're watching. The obedience that you give no matter who is watching. And when nobody but God is watching. By faith they obey Christ with an unwavering pursuit to please the Lord. If you ever get a birthday card or a birthday gift from me, you'll probably find on the inside of it written 2 Corinthians 5. No. He said, why do I write that verse? This is what it says. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul had one goal. That he might know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and that he might please him. And those two go right together. In fact, they're basically the same thing. We make it our aim to please him. They had an unwavering pursuit. In Philippians 1, 27, Paul says it this way, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That his aim, his goal was to please the Lord. It was unwavering pursuit of obedience to please God. But faith they obeyed Christ willingly and eagerly by faith they obeyed Christ joyfully. Brother and sister in Christ, let me ask you, let me ask us all, we all stand under this question together. How is your obedience to Christ? Is it hard-hearted? Eager? Is it willing? Or is it a fair minimum? But the minimum payment under these employment. Just enough to keep you out of trouble. That's not what Christ wants from us. What he wants from us is a wholehearted, sacrificial, willing obedience that says, I will go the extra mile. I will walk where you have to tell me to walk. I will pick up a cross no matter how heavy and no matter how hard and no matter how painful. And I will carry it all with you. Is that easy? No. So, but then we have the Spirit of God that lives within us, enabling us and empowering us. And then the world says, do it our way. And you hear the voice of the Spirit of God in your heart saying, no, do it God's way. And we'll give you the power to do it. Brothers and sisters, we must thank you. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we look to you again. Father, as we stop and consider the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, marked by so many things, but overriding them all, a profound obedience to you. Father, as we consider that those moments in the garden, he fell on his face in a great agony he prayed. 
this public house of you. Nevertheless, not my will, but I be known. Father, in his humanity, in his deep love for you, in the fellowship that you and the Holy Spirit and the Son have enjoyed for eternity past and well into eternity future, always. For a time that must be broken. And he grieved in his heart because he knew it must be broken to accomplish your will to save our virtuous <laughs> souls. And yet even there he would not draw back, he would not pull away, but he obeyed all the way to the cross. And in reality, O oh God, the victory was won in the garden as he turned and walked out and said, Who do you seek? Said Jesus of Nazareth. Father, we pray and cry out to you, God, for every single person in this room. Father, for, this, for those few that are here that don't know you, don't know what it means to fully trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, to fully walk with you in obedience and faith. Father, I cry out to you and plead with you, O oh God, that you will give them no rest. Father, powerfully convict them in the depths of their heart that they need to trust you and walk with you by obedience and by faith in the hope of resurrection. Father, I pray that they would see the Lord Jesus not as a cruel taskmaster, but one who has gone before and set the perfect example for obedience. Father, I cry out to you that you would save those in this room that don't know you. Father, also, cry out to you for all of us who have made a profession of faith and have begun to walk by faith and obedience. Father, some of our obedience is, is lagging and slowing down. The Lord will find reasons and excuses not to obey. Father, I pray that we would also look to Jesus and see there the perfect example of obedience. That we would step in behind him and reach down to the ground and pick up that cross. We would, like those apostles who stood there in front of the Sanhedrin, we would die to self, choosing rather to suffer for the name of Christ, choosing rather to disobey the authorities rather than dare disobey you. Father, give us wisdom too in this area of disobedience to obey you. Father, help us to be very wise of the things that we do and say that we would not inadvertently and carelessly wind up disobeying you. Father, help us also to know, to understand, to discern wisely where we must refuse to obey established authorities that we may continue to obey you. Father, we ask for wisdom in that. Lord, again, for our nation, we will lift up the country before you. And Father, we see a government, even though we have a believer, in the Prime Minister's seat. Father, we pray for our government, pray for our nation. We pray, oh God, that, that Scott Morrison would lead that, this country back towards biblical truth, back towards obedience to the scriptures, that he would stand fast and hold firm the biblical truth he knows to be right. Father, give him courage and give him wisdom. Give him the strength, the support he needs. Father, we pray for those voices that would turn this nation into further ungodliness.
silence their wickedness. Father, we pray that you would silence those voices. Father, we pray too that the voices of Christian men standing in the pulpit and proclaiming the gospel would ring loud and long and clear. That this nation would hear from the pulpits God's word, God's call to repentance and belief. Father, give us all, men and women, young people, old people, the strength and the courage to stand firm for what the Bible teaches, to obey, to choose again and again by faith to obey the living God rather than disobey. Father, we ask you also for those who are struggling, discouraged and downhearted. Father, those who are facing some very difficult days ahead, Lord, we pray that they would rest fully in the Lord Jesus sustaining holy hand, knowing that he holds on to them and will keep them, keep them safe and bring them home. Lord, we ask you for your blessing. We give you thanks again, O God, for our time of worship today. We ask you for your blessing as we depart in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.